Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Her Health, the show that reprioritizes your to-do list and puts your health first. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, AVP of Social and Influencer for Providence Health. This season, we're talking about why midlife health matters, because beginning at the age of 35, women face increased risk for many conditions, and it's important to know what to watch for and to get the recommended screening. Our goal is to help women make informed healthcare choices for themselves. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Sharzad Akberry, a dermatologist with Facey Medical Group based in Porter Ranch, California. And we are talking about all things skin and how we age gracefully. Remember, everyone, if you have questions for our expert, please share them with us on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Twitter at Providence and under Providence Health System on Instagram. Use the hashtag HerHealth, that's hashtag HerHealth, and we'll be on the lookout for your questions. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. So let's get started today by welcoming our guest, Dr. Ackberry. Thank you for joining us. Well, Dr. Ackberry, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm I'm really excited about this topic because I feel like I have a lot to learn in this space. And as a woman in my, um, let's just say 40s and call it a day, um, I would like to, to live a little bit longer longevity of my skin. So tell us though, before we get started on all the fun questions, um, tell me a little bit more about your area of focus and, and, and how you got into it. Sure, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me, Mary. I'm so excited to talk to all of your listeners today. So I am a board certified dermatologist and a dermatologist wears many different hats, but our specialty is uh, focused on the hair, skin, and nails. And as a dermatologist, we treat really over 3,000 different skin conditions related to the hair, skin, and nails. Um, So it's a very diverse field. Um, There is so much fun in what we do. We get to see patients of all ages, which is one of my favorite parts about the field. And my main specialty is is really focused on medical, surgical, and cosmetic dermatology. Um, The medical always comes first, of course. And then, of course, with cosmetics, we have so much interest in it within the general population and with all of my patients that I see. Um, So we have a focus on that as well. Well, let's talk about the, the difference between the two. Give us some examples of medical versus cosmetic. I think we know, but let's just go for it. Yeah, so a lot of medical conditions are things like acne, psoriasis, eczema, um, lots of different inflammatory or autoimmune conditions. Those are the things I see kind of on an everyday basis. But with all of those conditions, because they manifest on the skin, come a lot of cosmetic concerns. You know, why do I have a dark spot after a pimple has left? Or, you know, why do I have this red mark? Um, It's bothering me, it's in photos, things like that. So you can't really talk about medical dermatology um, without having, you know, some component of, of a cosmetic discussion with your patients, because it always comes up, because patients want to know what's on my skin, you know, what's going on here. I always think about dermatologists and how if you say that on an airplane, what do you do? I'm a dermatologist. People automatically, do they always say, what is this? Is this, is this okay? <laughs> they do. The, they, yeah. mole, right? <laughs> they definitely do. It's great cocktail party conversation. Um, it always gets brought up, but I, I never mind doing it, um, especially if there's a, a spot of concern because some people are, I don't know, maybe it's just my perception, but sometimes when I get patients, they say, I've never been to a dermatologist. I'm a little nervous. I'm a little scared. Um, So I hope that we're not intimidating, but it 
of course, everybody's different. It can be an area of your health that you might not have thought about for a while. And then as you age, if something comes up that's new or dark or scary looking, um, it can be very intimidating. So I hope that in our conversation today, we can put some patients at ease and, and get them to go see their dermatologist because honestly, anybody can benefit from seeing a dermatologist. It's a great point, though. How do we get to a dermatologist? Because like you talked about medical versus uh, cosmetic. So if I mm -hmm. wanted a cosmetic procedure, I probably would come directly to you. But if it's medical, have I usually seen a PCP first? Do I need to ask my primary care for a referral? That depends on your insurance plan. Really, with HMO plans, usually, yes, you'll go through to your primary care physician first. And if it's something that they deem that they can handle, then they'll handle it. But if they feel like it needs more specialty attention, then they'll submit a referral. Um, but if you have a PPO plan or a Medicare plan and your insurance doesn't dictate seeing a primary care physician first, you can usually come straight to a dermatologist. Um, but definitely when you're doing your research, I would advocate that you look for somebody who's board certified in dermatology, um, which means that we went to medical school, either uh, which is a four-year degree, and then after that did one year of an internship, which is usually a year spent in a hospital um, treating patients uh, in an internal medicine, in the ICU, in the ER, and then a three-year specific dermatology residency. And it's really during those three years that you see a plethora of patients and you get hands-on training along with a lot of book work, lectures, research presentations, and you really, really study the field. Um, after those three years, you take a board exam and you become board certified in the specialty, and then you start your practice. Um, sometimes some dermatologists will go on to a fellowship, and there are certain fellowships in cosmetic dermatology that they'll do in a certain type of skin, care, uh, skin cancer surgery called Mohs surgery, or in pediatrics as well. Um, but all of, all of those components, a board certified dermatologist will get all components of those training during their residency as well. Did you know you wanted to be a dermatologist when you went to medical school? I did. I I thought, well, I guess I I thought I wanted to. I wasn't sure because I knew that I think I like dermatology, but I haven't really done it yet. So it's hard to say that I definitely want to do it. And the other thing about it was that I was a little bit intimidated because with dermatology training, um, the residency programs are extremely competitive. So within medicine, you have to have top marks and work really hard and it can be daunting. Um, but thankfully, I kind of kept my head down and studied hard and I was able to get into a residency spot. But I really solidified my passion for dermatology in my third year of medical school when I started doing a dermatology rotation. So that's really when you get out into the field and you start working underneath the dermatologist just to see what they do. Um, and I fell in love with it right away. That's amazing. Well, you talk about medical school, but you also talked about getting a board certified. Do you feel like day spas are impacting kind of the way people think about dermatology and, and what it actually is? I do. Um, I think that there's such a variety that's available to patients right now because there's such a high demand. And Certain day spas, estheticians, or mid-level providers, which would be a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant, they can certainly handle um, a plethora of conditions, but there really isn't a substitute for somebody who has a board certification and has had those hours and the number of patients and the number of procedures that we do um, that 
you know, really make us the experts in the field. Uh, it's not to say that you can't go to one somebody there, but if you really have a, a deep concern or if you want to get the highest opinion, definitely seeking out somebody who's board certified is worthwhile. I feel like dermatology is kind of getting this this new awareness, not so much a new awareness because you know most of us have known about forever, but when you look at things like lip injections and butt injections and Botox and you've got the Kardashians out there that I think people now tend to think of, of it more as that cosmetic side, but don't really understand that there is a big medical component to it. So let's talk a little bit about if, if I if I come see you and maybe I've been referred because either there's a, there's a, something that doesn't look quite right, or maybe mm -hmm. my doctor said that I have psoriasis and I want to learn more. What does it look like? I, I call, I get an appointment, I show up, what would I expect? So it depends on why you're there. A lot of the times, if it's our first visit, um, we don't always need to put you in a full gown and look at every inch of your skin. If you're there for one specific spot or a certain rash, um, my nurses will do the intake and I'll come in and we'll do it just like any other office, medical office visit, we'll do a thorough history. And then a lot of the times in dermatology, we jump to the physical pretty quickly. You'll notice that your dermatologist may take out what's called a dermatoscope, which is a light that can amplify lesions and help them better visualize um, the spots on your body. And then um, we kind of jump straight to it because it's such a visual field. And we've seen so many patients and so many lesions that we are trained to study the morphology and the pattern and the texture of the lesions to make a diagnosis. So sometimes you can walk in and you can know the diagnosis, you know, before you even hear the history. But of course, we, we always take into account the history and then we go to the physical. And then depending on what we see, um, we do a lot of procedures in dermatology. So if the diagnosis isn't always clear or if, you know, if our diagnosis is more clear, more suspicious of a skin cancer and we know that it needs a biopsy, we'll usually do a biopsy that same day. Um, so a biopsy could be either a shave biopsy where we just numb the spot in question and we just flatten it out, put it in a bottle and send it to pathology. Or if we want to see the second layer of the skin and down into the fat, we'll do what's called a punch biopsy, which will require two little stitches. Um, but both procedures are very safe, very quick, um, very clean, very low risk of infection, and they help us get our diagnosis. Uh, we do also do a lot of liquid nitrogen therapy, and that is um, pressurized liquid nitrogen that's used to freeze off warts or certain growths that might be irritating or inflamed or even certain growths that might be precancerous. So like I said in the, at the top of our conversation, it's so diverse and so broad, which is what makes it so fun. I, as you were talking, I was like, oh, I've had a punch biopsy. I've yeah. done this. I've done that. I, yeah. think, I feel like I've spent a lot of time with dermatologists. But I'm, as, as we get older, how, how does that impact our skin? Or, or what kinds of things do you see or treat as we go from our 20s to our 30s to our 40s to our 50s and beyond? Yeah, so a lot of the times I see patients um, when they're very young for maybe conditions like eczema or certain moles that they were maybe born with that have grown with them. Uh, in, of course, we have a large population of teenagers that I see with acne, but it's not just limited to teenagers with acne. I see a lot of young adults in their 20s, 30s, even their 40s who still struggle with acne. Um, and then skin cancer is another thing that comes up as well. And our risk of skin cancer does increase as we age. We do tend to see skin cancer more in the fifth or sixth decade of life, but I have seen it as early as in patients in their 20s and 30s. 
Um, and that's really with our non-melanoma skin cancers. With our melanoma skin cancers, we actually unfortunately do know that there's a peak incidence of melanoma in the late 20s. Um, it's actually the number one cause of cancer in uh, I believe in females from the age of 25 to 29 is melanoma skin cancer. Wow. So, so with all my patients, if I am seeing them for acne or if I'm seeing them for something else, oftentimes I kind of take in an assessment of their, um, their risk and their sun exposure. You know, if they have a ton of freckles, if they've got light eyes, red hair, or if I have been seeing them for a long time, I'll always just say, hey, by the way, can I take a peek at your back? Um, just to see, you know, hey, if there's something back there that maybe we, we you didn't know was there that could potentially be hazardous. Um, so there's a lot. I mean, as, as people age though, a lot of the times we do a lot more what we call full body skin exams for patients um, later on in their lives. And you're never too young to get one. You can get one in your 20s or 30s as just a precursor to say, hey, you know, do I have a ton of moles that I need to watch out for? Does my dermatologist recommend that I come in once a year, once every six months? Am I good for maybe two or three? Um, things like your family history really play a role in that and your son history as well. Um, but with the full body skin exam, that's basically when I would get a patient into a gown and take a look everywhere in between the toes, under the feet, um, looking at sometimes the genital areas, if there's a spot of concern, and really taking a survey of what lesions are on the body and which ones are potentially cancerous or harmful. I'm, I'm just taken aback, I think, by the, the significant prevalence and, and, and death rate in, in such a young age when you were talking about skin cancer. Is, why is that? Is it environmental? Is it lifestyle? It's a little bit of both. Um, with melanoma, we do know that there is somewhat of a genetic predisposition. We have seen melanomas in families, and we have seen certain syndromes that can predispose patients to melanoma. We also know that tanning bed risk uh, increases, or tanning bed use increases our risk of melanoma. So using a tanning bed before the age of 35 actually can increase your risk of melanoma by 75%. So melanoma skin cancer we do worry about because it can spread to other parts of the body and it can be fatal but thankfully when caught very early and early detection is key the survival rate is excellent so with melanoma skin cancer we're really trying to educate our patients and there's a lot of different initiative that initiatives that have come out about looking for spots that are different that are black that are changing uh, to bring those patients in and to say, okay, this isn't right. We need to get it looked at because the earlier we get it off, the better. Well, so I guess I'm thinking we should be checking ourselves. Yeah. I mean, how, how often should we be checking our bodies to make sure we're not seeing a new one or something that's changing? I think it's different for every person. So if you have a ton of moles and you look back there and you see five, six, seven, a dozen, who knows? Um, it's a little too much pressure to check yourself a little bit, I think. So leave it to your dermatologist. Go and have go um, see them, have them take a look, give you peace of mind. And then if they point out a spot to you, definitely you'd want it that you can easily keep an eye on. Um, they might do that and then that would be helpful. But a lot of the times, um, if you don't have a ton of moles and you just take an inventory, at least maybe once every couple of months when you're out of the shower, say, okay, I have a mole here, I've got one on my inner thigh, I have one on my breast, 
um, take an inventory, see what they look like so that if you notice any dramatic changes, that would then alert you to come in. Oh, very, very helpful. Very helpful. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue talking about how we age gracefully. Always on my side 
We're back with Her Health and Dr. Sharzad Akbari, a specialist in dermatology, and we've been talking about aging gracefully. Um, you mentioned a minute ago that genetics plays a, a big role in kind of our skin health. How, how so? With genetics, genetics help determine our phenotype, basically, so our skin tone and our complexion. Um, and that has a big role because our, our skin type, the lighter your skin is, the more likely you are to have a skin cancer. Um, but that's not to say that skin cancer doesn't happen in patients who have darker skin tones. It definitely does happen, but just at lower rates. Um, the more susceptible you are to burning as well can increase your risk of skin cancer. And then the overall makeup of our skin, our collagen content, our elastic fibers, um, all of those are genetically inherited traits. And it's partially, just like every aspect of our health, it's partially genetic, partially environmental. How we take care of our skin moving forward definitely plays a big role. So just because you have maybe a mother or an aunt or father who's had a skin cancer, it doesn't mean that you're destined to have one. It just means you might have some risk factors because you have first degree relatives and you might want to make sure that you're taking your sun protection a bit more seriously and initiating it a bit more early. Um, well, you genetics, we can't really control, but environment and, and lifestyle we can. So you talked about tanning beds. So we're all, we're all writing that down. No tanning beds. No tanning what, beds. Are things, <laughs> what are the other things we should think about? Like I, I hear a lot about getting a good night's sleep or hydration or my mm -hmm. nutrition and all of those things. What are some of the things we can do that we can kind of help ourselves out with? So definitely sun exposure is our biggest risk factor for not only aging of our skin, but skin cancer as well. So sun protection from a very early age is critical. And I think it's fantastic the way that the, popu the younger population of today has been so almost obsessive about skincare and about sun protection. Um, I'll say I'm in my 30s and when I was in high school, it definitely wasn't like that. We, we knew we were more concerned with our acne than we were sun protection, but in the teenagers that I'm seeing today, they are protecting themselves from the sun like I've never seen before, which is fantastic. Um, but early intermittent intense bursts of sun and bad blistering sunburns as a child and adolescent can increase our risk for skin cancer um, and definitely increases our risk of photo aging in the future. So the freckles and the white spots and brown spots um, that a lot of women are seeing right now in their 50s and 60s don't necessarily come from the sun that they're getting today, but from the damage that they got when they were much younger. And I hear that from my patients all the time when they're in their 60s and they're getting their full body examination. They say, when I was a child, you know, we didn't have sunscreen. We used baby oil, we used foil, and we went out and we baked our skin uh, because we didn't know any better. But I think the beauty of today's world is that we now we know better and we have so many products out there that there's really no excuse to not use a sunscreen every single day. I, I'm, I'm chuckling because, one, you look like you're in your 20s. So whatever you're doing. Oh, thank you. But I was thinking you were saying 60s and 70s and I'm in my 40s and I remember putting on the baby oil and laying out mm -hmm. on the grass like all summer long trying to get like the best tan you could. And 
yeah, yeah. I'm definitely, definitely paying for that later in life, but, um, yeah, and, and it's never too late. No, well, that's good. I mean, we can't always undo, but I, I, I said I was paying for it later in life, but I'm actually paying for it in a lot of ways because I'm paying out of my pocket because I'm buying all of these products <laughs> to try to like reverse age and skin correct and color correct. Like, do these things work? Some do and some don't. So I think with skincare products, there are so many out on the market right now that you really have to look at the ingredients um, because some of it, of course, is marketing. And that's with everything in our society. Um, there definitely is a place for consistent sunscreen use um, every single day. And with our sunscreen, I would say that is number one. Beyond any other product that you use, you have to wear sunscreen every day. And I, I hear it from my patients, well, I don't go out in the sun. Well, just because you're not going out when sitting by the pool to tan or to get a little bit of color doesn't mean that you're not getting sunlight when you're in the car or when you're going to and from the store. There's a famous um, photo that was actually in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 2012. And it was of a gentleman um, who worked as a truck driver for about 28 years. And the left side of his face is striking how much actinic damage he has compared to the right side. Um, our listeners, if you just wow. Google truck, yeah, if you just Google truck driver, um, New England Journal sun damage, you'll see the difference that the sun can do on our face. So definitely that's number one, and it's never too early. Um, other products out there, there are a ton of other products, and it just depends on what your skin type is and what your concerns are. So when we say anti-aging, what are we really asking about? Are we talking about dark spots? Are we talking about broken blood vessels in the skin? Are we talking about fine lines? Or are we talking about all of it? And a lot of the times it's all of it, which is really why going to see a dermatologist and um, number one, what you have to do is address any underlying concern. So if you have any underlying medical condition like acne or rosacea or eczema that could be impacting your skin, getting that under control is step one. And then they would be able to prescribe you a regimen that would help maintain um, your, your skin as it is and help prevent in the future as well. Awesome. Well, um, are there, well, actually, before I ask you this question, you talked about SPF a lot, but mm -hmm. well, sunscreen, which makes me think of SPF. How do we read them? Like what, what number do I want to hit? Is it, is it the maximum? Do I want to find that 75, 90 or what? Yeah. So what we're looking for with our sunscreen, I'm glad you asked that question. It's an SPF of 30 or higher. Um, so the magic number is 30. Once you get above that number, um, you know, a, a 50 will protect you a little bit more than a 30, a 100 will protect a little bit more than that. But it's not to say that an SPF 100 is double the protection of an SPF 50. Um, so there's a, a very small incremental difference between the two. And then we know, so we know that once you're at 30 or higher, then that's going to make the biggest difference. Then the second thing we have to look for in our sunscreen are the ingredients. And we have two basic types of sunscreen out on the market. We have our mineral sunscreens, which contain titanium dioxide and zinc oxide. And then we have our chemical sunscreens, which contain a variety of different chemicals. And those are certain terms like avobenzone, oxybenzone, um, a little bit of the longer names that are a little bit harder to pronounce. So, in general, I tend to recommend the mineral sunscreens. Now they both have pros and cons and they both work better than nothing at all. So if you're not gonna use, you know, if you're gonna use anything or 
uh, use either one, whichever one you like the most, but um, whichever one feels the best, because that's often the complaint that I get. It's too sticky. It makes me break out. Um, you know, when I when I sweat, it gets in my eyes and it stings. So you really have to do a little bit of trial and error to find the right sunscreen for you. The reason I like the mineral-based sunscreens is that they actually sit on top of the skin and they form a barrier to the skin rays that prevents them from getting absorbed. So they protect our skin cells a little bit better than the chemical sunscreens that actually let the UV rays get absorbed and then convert them so that they're not harmful. The chemical sunscreens also have a little bit of a higher incidence of contact dermatitis. Um, so sometimes putting them on can cause a rash and can cause a lot of itching and discomfort. And then the other thing about the chemical sunscreens, which people might have heard of recently, there were definitely some headlines. Um, they did some studies recently and they found that some of the chemicals after the sunscreen was applied was detected uh, at levels that were higher than acceptable by the FDA in the bloodstream. So when in doubt, use a mineral sunscreen. <laughs> but the implication of that hasn't been really understood yet. So we know that we can detect these molecules in our bloodstream, but are they harmful? We don't know 100%. And so I know that a lot of the companies are doing more studies, the FDA is looking into it more. Um, again, I'd rather we use our sunscreen than fry like a lobster. But if you have the choice between the two, definitely go for a mineral-based sunscreen. And will it say that on the package? Will it say mineral-based? It or? will, yeah. It'll say mineral and it will say um, titanium and zinc on the back. And yeah. uh, the reason that people don't like those sunscreens as much is they are what are in like a baby sunscreen. They're a little bit thicker and a little bit more white and they tend to leave a little bit of a white cast. But the, um, the cosmeceutical companies and our marketing team over the world has caught on to people not liking that um, as much. And they are creating a lot of new formulations where a mineral-based sunscreen will actually blend in very well, where it may have a little bit of tint. So they're making them much more elegant than they used to be. And, I, and that's really their only barrier. They're just not as elegant. Yeah, I, I wear um, a mineral-based and it's, I then work on a farm sometimes, well, I mean, I have one and I'll go out and then I'll have streaks down my face of the white because of the white, so yeah. Which, yeah, but I mean, sunscreen, yeah, sunscreen's not our only option though when it comes to sun protection. So definitely wearing wide-brimmed hats and trying to avoid being outdoors between the peak hours of UV rays. So between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., obviously that varies based on where you live. Um, and then wearing sunglasses can help. What I really love for a lot of my patients is recommending UPF clothing, which is the ultraviolet protective factor clothing. So there are a lot of companies making very fashionable long sleeves, bandanas, hats that have a sun protective factor built in so that you don't have to slather up on the sunscreen every single time you go outside. Um, a lot of men like those a lot more because men don't really like to put sunscreen on, especially if they have more hairy surfaces, they really don't like it. So getting them to wear a sun protective shirt um, has been life-changing for a lot of my patients. I have so many questions about sunscreen right now. It probably could be a whole show, but I'm going to just touch it on it. It really could be. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you were talking about men and the, the, the thickness of it, but what about sprays? Like are sunscreen sprays, are they acceptable forms? 
Sprays are acceptable forms. Um, there are some sprays, majority of sprays, I would say, don't have the titanium and zinc in them. Although I did just see one recently that came out with a zinc-based spray. Um, so with kids, we don't want to use a lot of spray because it aerosolizes and we don't know, you know, we they have such young lungs and we don't want them to be breathing right. in these chemicals as much. Um, same thing with adults. And my preference is always to go with something that you apply rather than a spray. But I understand people are out, they're on the go, they're at the beach, they're sweating, they want something that's going to cool them down. Again, something's always better than nothing. Um, but try and look for spray with the zinc or titanium in it. Do you know, it's not a fair question for you because it's not your space, but do you know sure, if the ones sure. that are mineral based, are those the ones that are better for like the coral reef and the environment too? They are thought to be, yes. Um, so the the chemical sunscreens have been implicated in the bleaching of coral reef, um, which is another tick in the no thank you box for the chemical sunscreens. Um, but we still don't know 100%. Um, but from an environmental standpoint, zinc and titanium has been proven to be very safe. Yes. All right. What about um, applications? So like if I'm if I'm going to the beach, right, I go in the water, I come out, I reapply. But if it's just a general day, and I'm just going about my day, do I put my sunscreen on in the morning and call it a day? Or do I need to like reapply? So if you're planning on working from home all day, I would definitely still put it on on your face, your neck, sometimes the backs of your hands. Those are really areas that um, going back to our aging factor, those are the areas that I really feel like show your age more than anything else, the neck, the chest and the hands. And those are areas that people forget about a lot. So putting it on um, in the morning, and if you're really not going outdoors, that's probably enough. But if you're in and out and running errands, then reapplying by mid afternoon is a good idea. Um, just depends on how much you sweat as well. So when it comes to going to the beach or going to the pool, I always like to tell my patients, don't put your sunscreen on when you're poolside, or when you're, um, you know, right getting to the beach. Put it on at home when you're putting your bathing suit on because you're not sweating yet. It gives it time to absorb in. And then you have it on for a longer period of time before you're exposing yourself to the sun rather than putting it on and jumping in the water. Um, so that really helps us maximize efficacy. Just get it on before. And then once you get there, you don't have to worry about it. You already have it on. And then if you are going to be outdoors for a long period of time, let's say three, four, five hours, usually about every two to three hours, you would want to reapply. And people can tell, you know, when people are out, they can tell, oh, my shoulders are getting a little pink. Everybody right. is, everybody keeps an eye on each other a lot more than they used to, which is great. You can feel that heat, you probably should reapply. <laughs> yeah, if you can feel the heat, if you can touch your skin and you feel a little red, take a break, go to the shade, cool down, reapply your sunscreen, um, and then, you know, call it and keep, keep having fun, I mean, we don't have much else to do these days. So I know a lot of people are going out to the beach and taking hikes and go using their pools. So we just want everybody to do it safely. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Dr. Ackberry, for joining us today and everyone for listening and sending in your questions. To get expert tips and advice for living your healthiest life, visit providence.org. Thanks for listening. Ask, 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 ask,